Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. Thanks for tuning into our series, The Follower's Trail Guide, Navigating the Path of Jesus, where we're asking the question, what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? As we walk through Jesus' farewell discourse to his followers in the book of John, we'll learn to follow in the steps of Christ as he marks out the way of discipleship for us. All right, the Gospel of John is where we are this morning. If you have a Bible and are following along, John chapter 15, verses 12 through 17. John chapter 15, verses 12 through 17. Um, you guys remember, we've, we've said it many times, these few chapters, John 13 through John 16, are called the farewell discourse because Jesus is almost at the end. His hour has come to depart, to return to his Father. He's going to die on the cross, rise from the grave, ascend to heaven. And so he's preparing his disciples. He's instructing them. He's encouraging them. And you remember last week, he shared with them the truth about who he is And who his followers are. He says, I am the vine, you are the branches. In other words, he's saying, even though I'm leaving, you are still going to be connected to me through the Holy Spirit. And you are still going to have the purpose of bearing the fruit of the Spirit. You're still going to have that abiding purpose even after I leave you. This movement is going to continue. And indeed it has. Um, It was around the world that the Jesus movement began. And here we are in southeast Michigan from the east coast of the Mediterranean to the Great Lakes. The gospel has not stopped. Its purpose has moved forward. That's what he's preparing his disciples to do, to carry this mission forward, even though he's leaving. Well, he's going to really focus in, uh, in these next few verses, he's going to really focus in on a specific fruit that he intends his disciples to bear as they move forward, connected to him, the vine. So let's get into this. John chapter 15, verses 12 through 17. Brothers and sisters, hear the words of our God. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. And you are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you, so that you will love one another. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. What is God's greatest hope for your life? If God had just one wish for what would become of your life, what do you think it would be? I thought about this question in relation to my hopes and dreams for my own children. As I think about their lives, as I think about their futures, I long for them to have a great childhood where they felt safe and cared for at home. I hope that they have awesome educational experiences with their friends and teachers as they grow. I want them to eventually find work, to find a profession that they're passionate about and feel purpose in. And whether or not my children ever get married or whether or not they ever have kids of their own, I just desire that they will continually be surrounded by and connected to 
community, people who really care about them, and that they'll just have rich, lasting relationships. That's what I hope for my children. That's what I wish will become of their lives. But what about God for you? What is his greatest hope for your life? If he had just one wish for what would become of your life, what do you think it would be? Well, as we look at the scriptures throughout the Bible, and certainly as we look at John chapters 13 through 16, I think we can summarize God's one wish for what would become of our lives in just one word. And that word is love. Love. The most famous and central commandment of all the Old Testament is Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 through 5. These words are referred to as the Shema. They read like this. Hear, O Israel, Shema Yisrael, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all your might. And during Jesus' own ministry, he confirms the importance of this command. Matthew chapter 22, Mark chapter 12, Jesus instructs that the two greatest commandments are to love God and to love people. And as we've studied John chapters 13 through 16, Jesus continues to highlight here the priority of love. You remember from chapter 13 verses 34 through 35, Jesus said, A new commandment that I give to you, That you, my disciples, would love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. Verse 35, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And in today's passage, chapter 15, verse 12, he says something similar. He says, this is my commandment, that you love one another. So in these two verses, Jesus is very definitive. He says, this is how they'll know you're my disciples, by your love for one another. This is my commandment, that you love one another. This is it. So he's very precise. It's very clear cut what he wants from us. Love. And notice too what he says in chapter 15, verse 12. He says, this is my commandment, singular that you love one another, as if Jesus has just one commandment, right? It's like, what are you talking about, Jesus? You've got a bunch of commandments. He's like, yeah, but this, this is it. This is my commandment to you, my disciples, that you love one another. I want you to see this in a couple other places in the New Testament. 1 Corinthians 13, famous chapter all about love, gets read at weddings all the time. The Apostle Paul says in the last verse of that chapter, verse 13, he says, So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. I mean, this is quite an incredible thing to say, right? Because faith and hope are crucial for us to have. We have faith in Christ. We are believers. And we have the hope of the resurrection. We have the hope of of heaven, but still the apostle says, as important as faith and hope are, the greatest of these is love. Another place in the New Testament, another one of Paul's writings, Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 and 23. This passage is well known. Paul lists there the fruit of the Spirit. And notice what's at the top of the list. Many commentators have pointed this out. This isn't an accident. The fruit of the Spirit is love. Number one, this is my commandment. 
This is the greatest. This is the number one fruit of the Spirit. Love. Love. So I dare say, church, that God's greatest hope for your life, if he had one wish for what would become of our lives, it is love. Now, even though that sounds clear and simple, it is not always so. Fighting and breakups and divorce and church splits and bitterness and betrayal, we could go on and on with all of the unloving things that take place in our lives and take place in the world. So what else is Jesus going to say here? How else is he going to help us fulfill his dream of us being a people of love? Well, the first thing we see here is that Jesus defines our definition of love. Jesus defines love for us. So look again at verses 12 and 13. Jesus speaks to his disciples and he says, this is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Aha, so Jesus is bringing some definition to the way the disciples are to love. He's clarifying that they are to love one another in the way that he has loved them. So how has he loved them? Well, he explains in the next verse, verse 13. He says, Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. So Jesus says, this is the kind of love I have for you, and this is the kind of love you all are to have for one another. Sacrificial love. The kind of love that moves you to sacrifice, to even lay down your life for one another. And of course, the cross is the greatest expression of this kind of love. Jesus Death on the cross, which is at this point in the story is just days away, his death on the cross was sacrificial. It was in our place. Jesus suffered not for his own sin. Jesus suffered not because he deserved it. He suffered for our sin. He suffered even though we deserved it. And you think about this. At the heart of so many of our stories is sacrificial love. So Harry Potter, Harry is Voldemort's final horcrux. So what does Harry do? He offers up his own life so that the Dark Lord may be defeated. In C.S. Lewis' tale, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, the Lion King Aslan, he gives up his life on the stone table. The White Witch slays Aslan so that Edmund may be freed. And there are countless war stories, aren't there? Saving Private Ryan, Band of Brothers, Lone Survivor, heck, even Forrest Gump. They tell of men and women who courageously and selflessly sacrificed for the good of others. So it seems as if there's this longing in each one of us to connect through story with the power of sacrificial love. It's like there's this innate sense in each of us. Man, I want that kind of love. I need that kind of love. And so authors fill their stories, movie producers fill their films with sacrificial love because they know that's what compels us. They know that's what grips us. It's what inspires us. It's what gives us life. But all of those stories that I mentioned, all of those stories and movies about selfless courage, wonderful as they are, those stories are only a shadow. 
They are only a faint echo of the truest story of all and the truest act of sacrifice. The story of all stories is the plan of our creator God to bring life and redemption to his fallen creation. And the main character in this story is God's own son, the Lord Jesus. And earlier in John's gospel, chapter 10, verse 11, Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. And the good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. And here in chapter 15, verse 13, he says, Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. And that's exactly what Jesus did. He laid down his life for his friends, just like Harry did for Hermione and Ron, just like Aslan did for Peter, Susan, Edmund, and Lucy, just like Forrest did for Baba. These characters sacrificed their lives for their friends. And so too did Jesus lay down his life for us in the ultimate act of sacrifice. This is my commandment, he says to his disciples, that you love one another just as I have loved you, just as I have laid down my life for you and sacrificed, so too now. You are to love one another. And Jesus' understanding of love is quite contrary to the kind of love that is so often emphasized in our culture. Yes, it's true, we are compelled by movies and stories centering on acts of sacrificial love. But in our culture, most often, when we think of love, we think of romantic love. Romantic love relates to loving someone because of the way they make you feel. That person makes you feel complete. They make you feel the warm and fuzzies inside. They make you feel, we say, infatuated. So when I was younger, I was exactly like this. I crushed hard. And when I met Meg, it was no different. I was entranced. I was impassioned. I was almost intoxicated by her. I felt all sorts of feelings. But it doesn't take long to figure out that as quickly as those feelings come over you is as quickly as they can leave you. And eventually, you got to learn that there's more to love than romantic love or you ain't going to be in love very long because those feelings flame out. And while Scripture doesn't belittle romantic love, Scripture does not judge us for feeling in love. In fact, Scripture celebrates that kind of love. Jesus is also teaching us here that the greatest kind of love goes beyond only feelings. It is gracious, selfless sacrifice. So this means that a husband sticking with his wife, daily visiting her in the memory care unit as she suffers with Alzheimer's, that's a clearer picture of love than a young couple frolicking down the beach holding hands. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 2, the apostle calls on us to bear with one another in love, to, quote, endure one another in love. Church, this means that if we only love people when they are easy to love, then we don't really love anybody. If we only love people when they make us feel good, then we won't really love anybody. 
Jesus has loved us with sacrificial love. Jesus has loved us when it was hard to love us. And now his hope for us, his command to us, is that we love one another with that same kind of love. So brothers and sisters, who has God put in your life that he's calling you to love like this? They annoy you, they frustrate you, and they just won't change and get better. You have to bear with them. You have to endure them. You have to love them like Jesus loved you. Jesus' love sounds great, right? Until he's like, now it's your turn to love one another like I loved you. But this is his wish for us. To become a people of love. And he helps us get closer to fulfilling his dream by defining what love is. Sacrifice. It hurts. It doesn't always feel good. In the next few verses, he's going to try to motivate us even further. He knows that showing sacrificial love is not easy. So he shares some motivating and assuring words related to our identity and related to our relationship with him. He's going to redefine, in fact, the nature of our relationship. He defines love and he redefines our relationship. So look again at what he says in the following few verses, verses 14 through 16. He says, Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends, verse 14, and you are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that the Father has made known to me, I have revealed to you. So Jesus here is reinforcing that he didn't die for us because he was forced to. He didn't sacrifice himself for us because God the Father made him. No, he says to his disciples, you are my friends. You who follow me in obedience, you are the ones I love. And the idea seems to be that if we can grasp how much we are loved as Jesus' friends, then it will motivate us, it will encourage us to live lives of love as well. And Jesus makes this contrast between friends and servants. He says that they're his friends and they are no longer his servants. Now on the surface of it, it seems to contradict much of what Jesus has said before. Because there are many other places in the New Testament where Jesus is called Lord or Master. And there are many other places in the New Testament where we are called servants of the Lord. So what's going on here? Well, what Jesus means is not that we are no longer his servants and that we don't have to obey him or, or serve him. We certainly do. What he means is that we are no longer his servants and that we are no longer in the dark as to the fullness of of God's redemption plan. He says in verse 15, No longer do I call you servants, for the servant doesn't know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, because all that I have heard from my father, I made known to you now. So this is one of the things that makes a friend a friend. You tell them everything, right? You tell your friends the things that are otherwise covered up and are secrets to the rest of the world. Jesus says, 
I have told you, I have revealed to you everything the Father has told me. I'm not some master who tells you what to do, but doesn't tell you why you're doing it or doesn't tell you what's really going on. Jesus is saying, you guys now know the fullness of God's redemption plan. The Christ has come. The Christ has died. He will rise and then he will give his spirit to his followers. This is what Abraham and Moses and David and the prophets long ago, they longed to see and hear what the disciples in that room were then hearing and seeing. Jesus is saying, you think the patriarchs were friends of God? You have received way more and you have seen way more of God's plan come to pass than any Old Testament hero. You are friends of God. Brothers and sisters, we are his friends. He holds nothing back from us. He laid down his life for us. He reveals the Father's plan to us. But now if we have this insight into the workings of God in the world, if we have received the fullness of God's redemption plan, you may think that it might puff us up a little bit. Like, hey, if we know what's really going on, if we have God's revelation, well, it's kind of like when someone tells you their secret and it's something important, something that many other people would like to know, well, you kind of feel special. You have this important knowledge that everyone else would want, and that makes you important. And it can kind of make you, for lack of a better word, prideful. But look at what Jesus says in the next verse, in verse 16. He says, All that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you, but you did not choose me. I chose you, and I appointed you to go and bear Fruit, fruit that should abide. So Jesus is motivating us towards love by calling us his friends, but he is also humbling us, saying that we did not make ourselves his friends. He chose us. He appointed us, not the other way around. Now, again, we have to ask ourselves, what's going on here? What does Jesus mean that we didn't choose him, but he chose us? Because throughout John's gospel, people are told to believe in Jesus. And believing in Jesus involves some kind of choosing, some kind of exercise of our will. So how do we square these two things? Well, I think the best way to put it is that, yes, as a believer, when we trusted in Christ for salvation, we chose him. But we chose him because he chose us. In other words, our choosing of his choosing of us undergirds and precedes and even causes our choosing of him. So in 1 John chapter 4, verse 19, John will later write, we love God because he first loved us. So yes, we are the beloved of God. Yes, we are friends of God. Yes, we have received the fullness of the knowledge of the gospel. And yet, we have nothing to be proud of in and of ourselves. We didn't earn our way on to team Jesus. He graciously chose us to be a part of this. So guys, what this means is we have every reason in the world to live a life of love. Jesus has shown us a love 
for which there is none greater laying down his life for us. Jesus relates to us as his beloved friends, making known to us the knowledge of salvation. And Jesus has chosen us for this very reason, to go and bear fruit, the fruit of love. So really quick, two questions as we finish. First, have you received the love of God through Jesus? Have you received the love of God through Jesus? Have you turned from your sin and put your trust in Jesus, receiving his love that flows from the cross? If not, I urge you to repent. I urge you to turn from your life of sin and surrender to Jesus, surrender to his love. There is no greater love than his Have you received the love of God? And secondly, who is God calling you to love? Who is God calling you to bear with? Who is God calling you to endure? Who is God calling you to love? And you're like, I don't want to. I encourage you, in light of whoever that is, I encourage you to receive this truth. You are a recipient of Jesus' sacrificial love. You are a beloved friend of God. You were chosen by love for love. You are a branch connected to the true vine Jesus with the purpose of bearing the fruit that abides, the fruit of love. So church, let's show one another the kind of love that we ourselves have received from Jesus. I pray it would be so for myself and for you all. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself to us today.